Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts are going to be discussing Acts chapter 9, verse 31, through chapter 10, verse 48. Throughout this section of scripture, we have several healings. We also have the story of Peter and Cornelius, as well as Peter's vision. And this passage will end with the Gentiles hearing the gospel. This is a really packed portion of scripture, and these men make some really excellent typological observations along the way during their conversation. As always, we do invite you to check out those links in our show notes. We do have a link to our Give page if you'd like to donate and be a part of our work, as well as links to our social media handles and our YouTube channel, where we are currently in a series on the book of Revelation, and we are posting regular Psalm Chan videos as well. With that, thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing the book of Acts. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, who is normally with us, is uh, has been called out to a pastoral call and uh, will not be joining us for this episode. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background making sure that the uh, machines are running and everything is getting recorded. We are in the closing stages of our summer fundraising campaign. Uh, we've been focusing on our project of, of completing a Psalter. We have a, a, a first edition of the Psalter that still is coming out soon. It's been delayed somewhat in printing because of the publishing house has uh, various backups and things, apparently because of the uh, a- epidemic. But uh, that will be out soon. But uh, we also, uh, as I've said a number of times, we, we have a team assembled and we have a plan uh, put together to complete the Psalter, to complete the translations that Jim Jordan started many years ago, uh, and to perfect those and smooth them out. We have some musicians who can put those translated psalms into chant form and uh, point them for chanting. Uh, and then we're going to have a uh, collection of composers to compose chant tunes for the rest of the Psalms. That's going to be a several-year project, uh, and we've been uh, looking to raise $30,000 in order to fund that project, mainly paying uh, the translators and musicians and others for the time that they spend on the project. Uh, we appreciate the generosity of many of you. We've gotten some a very encouraging response, not only monetarily, but also an encouraging response and interest shown in the in the uh, in the Psalter, but we do uh, need more money, so uh, please consider donating to that project in the closing days of July, as we uh, as we end up our fundraising campaign. We we uh, are looking for additional money for that Psalter. Uh, if you want to get a taste of what uh, what the Psalms sound like, Brian Motes has been recording the Psalms and putting them up on our YouTube channel. Some of them he recorded during our fellows program last year, and there's an ensemble of fellows and faculty that are singing the Psalms in various locations uh, around Sanford University. Uh, more recently, Brian has been uh, singing solo and doing the Psalms solo in uh, at uh, the new church building of Trinity Presbyterian Church here in Birmingham, where Brian and I attend. And uh, so they're uh, beautifully done. Uh, Brian's done a great job of uh, singing and putting those together, and also those have the 
translation on the screen so you can follow along with the chant. And uh, so that, that will give you a flavor of what we're going for. We, we want to te- teach the church to sing psalms like that. We believe that psalm singing is a, an important part of worship, an important part of the church's power and energy for mission, uh, for confronting the various challenges that we confront. Uh, and we think it's a will be a, an important weapon in uh, our arsenal. And we we uh, thank you for your generous support so far, and we ask you to keep supporting that project. We're in the middle of a podcast series on the Book of Acts, which we started a few months ago. Uh, we have uh, gone through the first almost the first nine chapters. We're going to start out today at the end of chapter nine, with a little snippet, uh, a couple of episodes that occur at the end. We've looked at uh, the conversion of uh, and commissioning of Saul last time, uh, and that uh, that uh, story ends with Saul, who will become known as Paul, who has gone to Jerusalem and he's in confrontation with the various the various Jewish groups that are opposing Jesus, and then he goes back to Tarsus to his hometown, and that's where we left the story in verse thirty one of chapter nine. In verse thirty two, Peter reenters the story, and for the next several chapters, Peter is going to be the principal character. Peter, of course, was the principal uh, leader in the Jerusalem church at the beginning of the book of Acts. He gives the great Pentecost sermon uh, talking about the gift of the Spirit that has been given from the Father to the Son and now poured out on the church. And uh, he and John were involved in both uh, healing and uh, wonders and signs in Jerusalem and then in confrontations with the leadership there. Peter reappears now in a different location. He's no longer in Jerusalem. He is traveling through other areas. He's going to end up uh, encountering Cornelius in Caesarea, as we'll talk about later in this episode. And then uh, chapter 12, uh, he is imprisoned, is released from prison. And uh, that's uh, the last major episode in the story of Peter in the book of Acts. So this is chapters 932 through the end of 12 are basically the conclusion of the Petrine section of the book of Acts. Peter reappears in chapter 15 of the Council of Jerusalem, but we're having, we have a transition here. Paul has been introduced and now Peter comes back in. Peter kind of closes out his, his role in the story and then uh, is handing over the story and the, uh, the main hero becomes Paul from this point on. So we're in that last section in the, in the very end of chapter nine. Uh, we have a couple of short episodes where Peter performs signs and wonders similar to the ones that the, he's performed he and John have performed in Jerusalem, but these healings are the now spreading out outside of Jerusalem, and that's making a transition into the uh, in, into the encounter with uh, Corn- with Cornelius in chapters ten and eleven. The healing of Nais and Tabitha might recall Luke's common pattern of having a female and a male alongside each other, whether in a healing or a parable or in some other way, that there is a a marriage of stories. And here again, I think we're seeing some of the themes of Jesus' miracles coming to the foreground again. If we look in the Old Testament, there's further background to be found in the stories of Elijah and Elisha in particular, especially in the resurrection story of, um, of Tabitha. We see that story of Elijah and Elisha in particular, um, and the raising of the sun very much in the background. The bringing up to the upper room, the prayer, and a various a number of other details recall those accounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the combination of the two accounts reminds me of the healing of um, uh, the Jesus's 
raising of Jairus's daughter as well, insofar as in, well, for instance, Mark 5, like the uh, recounting of it there, there is a woman who has an issue of blood and it's said to be for 12 years. So there is this kind of long-term condition in the backdrop and then Jesus goes uh, to a, a ruler's house, goes to the room and he, he doesn't allow anyone in uh, the room other than Peter, John and, and James. And then the, um, you know, Mark records there the uh, Aramaic uh, Talitha Kumi, or, or perhaps Kumi it might have been pronounced, which sounds very much like um, Talitha and Tavita here, mm. um, and rise Kumi is, is rise. So th- there's a lot of that going on, uh, I think. Um, I don't know if either of you had any thoughts about the detail of eight years and the possible significance of that. Well, my first thought goes to the various associations of eight in with the with the resurrection. I mean, the the day after the Sabbath, it's not part of the old week, but the beginning of a new week. He's been Aeneas has been bedridden for eight years, uh, paralyzed, and now he's given new life and is able to move. Uh, and it's a it's a participation in resurrection. He's commanded to arise, resurrection language. He, immediately he arose through the power of Jesus, who is the risen one. So I, I, I think it uh, has something to do with, uh, with that resurrection motif. Mm. I, wanted to, I thought uh, Alistair's comment about the marriage of stories, I, that's, a, that's a very nice way to put it. We have not necessarily signs and wonders, but we often have pairs of characters and male and female characters, as, as Alistair said in Luke. Uh, uh, Simeon and Anna, at the, beginning of, uh, uh, at the beginning of Luke, for example, a pair of witnesses to the infant Christ, Maybe in uh, Luke 24 with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it's often suggested that that's a, a husband and wife, not two, two male disciples, but a male and a female disciple. One thing makes me think that there's a, there is a link back to uh, chapter 24, and that's the fact that when Tabitha is raised up, Peter commands her to arise again, a resurrection image. When he tells her to arise, she opens her eyes and she sees Peter and then she sits up. Uh, and that's, of course, the statement of Luke 24, when Jesus begins to break bread, they, their eyes are open and they recognize who Jesus is, which then makes me think further of the original eye-opening event of the Bible, which goes back to Genesis 3 with uh, Adam and Eve. And I wonder if we have kind of a Adam and Eve pair. The marriage of stories is a kind of some partial renewal of Eden uh, as, it's, as, as it's renewing humanity. Another possible pairing we've got here is in chapter 9, there's this slightly unusual detail in verse 39 about how the widows are there and they're showing various uh, tunics and garments which Dorcas has made. And it reminds me, I guess, in rather a travesty of, of the way, of um, the end of chapter 7 where the witnesses are laying down garments at, at the feet of Saul. And that might pair together the deaths of Stephen and Dorcas, Here, who's a man and a woman who die well and die in in the Lord and their good deeds would have followed after them. And they are then a real contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, another man and a woman who who do not die well. I want to raise a couple of questions about the initial episode with uh, Aeneas or Aeneas or however we're going to pronounce that. First of all, uh, Lydda, where is Lydda? (laughs) Did anybody investigate that? I didn't. Uh, and then Aeneas. I mean, golly, can can you read the name Aeneas in the first century without thinking of the Aeneas? 
and uh, the the uh, founder of Rome. And we are we're definitely making a transition out of the Jewish world into a, a Gentile world, and specifically a Roman world with Cornelius. But this seems uh, that's another way that this would be a transition. The introduction of this name, I think, points us to the uh, spreading of the gospel outside of uh, Judaism and into the Gentile world. Did anybody did anybody uh, figure out where Lydda is? I think it's in the so, north of Israel. I, mean, I, I take Lydda to be um, equivalent with Lod, um, which is kind of kind of in Benjamin. So I mean, it, it's spelled kind of Luda, I guess, in 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 Greek. And um, I, I I drive past um, Lod on the way from Tel Aviv through to Jerusalem after you pick up your car in the, the airport. So um, it's it, I, I mean, if 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 that equivalence is right, then it's um. Uh, then it's yeah ne- nearish to Jerusalem. Um, I mean, it, it says it's near Joppa, doesn't it? In the uh, is that in the ne- next uh, in verse thirty eight? So I think some somewhere somewhere quite near Jerusalem, I think would fit mm. nearer towards the coast, probably. Right. So do you, do you think I'm I'm right in surmising that the name Aeneas or Aeneas is a uh, is a this is a Roman character or a, a Gentile character? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry for that inconclusive <laughs> answer. I, mean, I know that there are, there are Jews who take on um, classical um, classical names. I mean, the Maccabees uh, have cases of that identifying with uh, with the classical Hellenistic tradition rather than with the Hebrew tradition. So that's that's interesting. So uh, this is still within the boundaries of Judea, which makes uh, Makes sense why Peter is visiting these these saints. Uh, he's still operating within his Judean context, but uh, regardless of whether this guy is a Jew who's taken on a Roman name or a Gentile, I think the name itself stands out as a as a pointer to the Roman, the founder of the Roman the Roman Empire or the the Roman Republic, I guess, or the city of Rome, really, uh, at least the legendary founder. Uh, and I think that. So that gives us a particular zone of concern here, both in this chapter and the following couple of chapters. Uh, we're still within the world of Judaism in a sense, but now we're dealing with Gentiles who exist within that world of Judaism uh, that uh, are receiving the gospel and benefiting from the power of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that Luke on several occasions gives us um, alternative names for people. And it seems that, he does so on significant occasions, and sometimes he'll vary the name that he uses of certain people, such as of Peter. Um, later on, he'll call him Simeon. Um, other times, he's called Simon. Um, sometimes he's called Peter. Sometimes he isn't. Um, likewise, Paul is initially introduced to us as Saul, and then in chapter 13, his name is, from that point onwards, called Paul. Um, we're also told of characters like um, Elymas the sorcerer or Bar-Jesus. Um, here it's Dorcas and Tabitha. And it seems that Luke is very mindful of the resonance that certain names have and the way that he can play off um, names and other words or names and other characters. So the association between Saul and um the Old Testament Saul, and then Paul and Sergius Paulus. So here, um, the association with Mark 5.41, um, the Aramaic command for the woman 
for the young girl to arise. Um, here it connects with the character of Dorcas. Um, it seems that Luke wants us to pay attention to the details of the names and his use of names is probably a lot more thoughtful than many give him credit for. Mm. They're not just um, incidental details. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And um, building on um, connecting that to Peter's point, I guess the, the very fact that the name uh, Tavita then is, is translated um, into its Greek um, equivalent, which I guess is like gazelle or, or something, um, gives that sense of, yeah, the gospel going into um, Greek-speaking uh, Greek worlds very soon. One detail that is interesting on that front, if I recall, um, Luke doesn't actually have the Aramaic for the raising of Jairus' daughter, which suggests that Luke was writing with a familiarity um, with Mark's gospel. Um, but without having included that particular detail, he's maybe presuming that his readers also share that familiarity. And often people have this idea of the gospels in hermetically sealed communities. Um, but the assumption that the readers would be familiar with um, the Aramaic raising command um, suggests that that's not actually the case. Yeah, that would be maybe an example of a technique that uh, Luke uses. If you read Luke and Acts together, I think we've mentioned this before, read Luke and Acts together, there are themes, quotations, motifs that he, that the, the, the other gospel writers, the Matthew, Matthew and Mark in particular, talk about in the gospel, and Luke doesn't mention in his gospel, but brings up in Acts. So there's a there's a kind of delay uh, and and you know showing the showing the unity of the two uh, of the ministry of the uh, of Jesus and the apostles and the two books are not just happen happen to be written as a pair but are designed together. I wanted to uh, wanted to bring something else out. Alistair mentioned at the beginning the the link with Elijah, which is uh, there are a number of details as he said that uh, link up with the various healings of Elijah and Elisha. I think that's that reflects a kind of under undergirding typology that's running through Luke Acts together. Uh, you know, in, in one sense, of course, John the Baptist is the Elijah figure. Jesus is the wonder-working Elisha who follows him. Even the name Yeshua, Jesus, and Elisha are both have the Yeshua. He saves um, that that root is uh, is there in both names. But another level, you have uh, Jesus is the Elijah figure, and the apostles are the Elisha. Who are doing the same works, doing greater works in some cases, works that uh, involve even more more splendid displays of power than Jesus himself had done. Uh, and I think uh, that's I think that's a, a, an example of what you have here the the parallels that we're drawing out between this healing and the the work of Jesus shows that the the apostles are the Elisha who have received they're the Elisha collection of Elishas I guess who have received the spirit of Elijah. And now are carrying out the work of Elijah in his spirit and his power. So modeled on the original Elijah and Elisha, uh, they're also modeled on the uh, fulfillment, uh, the fulfilled Elijah, who is Jesus. Hmm. It's a slightly incidental point, but you can sometimes get the impression, looking over Acts, that the people live in this world of miracles where people don't really bat an eyelid at the healing of, of someone. It's just part of 
everyday life but these acts of peter have incredible significance Mm. don't they so in verse 35 all the residents of lydda and sharon saw him and they turned to the lord and then in verse 42 it it became known throughout joppa um what they've done so these were very significant Mm -hmm. acts and um verse 41 um the, the end there then calling the saints and widows he presented her alive this is sort of grammatically identical phrase to um in the very first chapter when it talks about jesus presenting himself Mm. alive to the disciples and it seems to be that Mm. demonstration of new life that we've seen in in the earlier chapters as well one of the details that has led some commentators to say that uh, this end of chapter nine is a transition into the direct encounter with the roman cornelius that is the the location of Peter's lodging in Joppa. Verse forty three says he uh, he lodged many days in Joppa with a certain tanner named Simon. And the point is made that uh, tanning would involve slaughtering of animals, skinning, touching dead bodies, and uh, the suggestion is that this is a this would be a a profession that would be avoided by Jews. That it would be considered unclean. I'm not sure that that's actually the case. I would, um, Priests also are slaughtering things and, and skinning animals all the time, but maybe maybe that maybe in an outside the outside of a holy space, this would be considered a an unclean profession. And Peter is uh, lodging there, which shows that he's perhaps it means already before he encounters Cornelius, he's already willing to associate uh, the, the the boundaries between uh, Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean, are already being breached. Bringing the body to the upper room is an interesting detail. When we, when somebody dies, we tend to bring them down. Um, the fact that they would bring a body to an upper room is already a sign that this isn't a, a typical, this isn't typically what we do. Um, yeah. And there is already an anticipation of some resurrection there. I think we see that in the story of the son that dies in the story of um, Elisha. But right. there's also something of that here, I suspect. Yeah, and uh, upper rooms are uh, conceptually connected to other kinds of elevated places and elevated spaces uh, in Scripture. You have, uh, you know, mountains and uh, would be outdoor upper rooms. Uh, you have various uh, buildings that are considered high places uh, that are elevated and so on. So, yeah, you have a. It seems they are anticipating something is going to happen, rather than carrying her out and making it easy making it easy for them to take her out for burial they uh, instead move her up higher closer to god uh, in an elevated space yeah. well let's move on to chapter 10 which introduces uh, cornelius uh, and uh, and peter's encounter with cornelius and uh, one of the puzzles i had as i was going through this uh, was the it's kind of an unusually organized story unusually organized because you have these repetitions of the same information several different times from different people. The narrator tells of Cornelius's vision, then the messengers uh, to Peter tell of Cornelius's vision. Then Cornelius tells of his vision. And then in chapter 11, Peter's going to go back to Jerusalem and he's going to have to tell about the story of Cornelius. So there's a, a repetition of the same, of the same incident. Peter's own vision is re- told a couple of times. And you also have this, this odd phenomenon of Cornelius seeing a vision to contact Peter, but not being told why. He's just told to summon Peter. And he doesn't know why he's summoning Peter. <laughs> he just is told to do it by an angel. And so 
when an angel tells you to do something, I guess you jump and do it. And then Peter is given a, uh, this vision that just seems to come out of the blue, apart from the fact that he's hungry and it's a vision about food. It doesn't seem to have to do with anything. So you have these two people who are in different locations, two puzzling visions, and then the two people are brought together at the climax of the story later on in chapter 10. And I, it occurred to me that um, in some sense, there's a the, the structure of the story is kind of a parable of Jew and Gentile. You have these two, these two peoples uh, that are separated from each other. The Lord is intervening and instructing them to find each, find each other. Uh, and then when they find each other, the spirit falls on the Gentiles and Peter recognizes that God shows no partiality. Um, he recognizes that God has given the same gift to the Gentiles as he had to, has to the Jews. And so this is not just a story about the gospel going to Gentiles and the spirit going to Gentiles, but the story is told in a way to actually, the story enacts on a small scale what, what is happening on a large scale. I wonder whether that repetition is something in common with various Old Testament and other stories where the repetition highlights a response to a divine initiative. And so the initial event focuses upon divine action and then the re recounting of the event later on is witnessing to what God has done. And so whether that's the description of the construction of the tabernacle or the story of um, Abraham's servant going to find Rebecca, or many of these other accounts where we do see a story repeated, it seems mm -hmm. that God's initiative is underlined by the fact of this lengthy reporting of what has occurred. And Luke will do this again, um, the story of Saul's or Paul's conversion is retold on two further occasions in his trial accounts. Mm -hmm. right. And it seems to me that that might be part of what's going on. Another thing that that shape does is couple this story together with chapter nine, if you think about the shape there. So Saul receives a vision and he is then shown Ananias come and lay hands on him. And Ananias is then told what Saul has seen and implicitly he's told to go and lay hands on Saul. So those two people, Ananias and Saul, are sort of each part of a puzzle. They each have half the picture and Ananias initially objects um, when he's told to go and, and visit Saul, says, you know, I've, I've heard evil and so forth, but then he goes and does it. And the text is very explicit. He enters the house of Saul and then the spirit comes, which certifies the work of God. And it's a very similar sequence of events here, isn't it? We start with Cornelius in prayer, just as Saul was in prayer. And then Peter, we pan to him and he's told to uh, accompany the men to the house of Cornelius. And like Ananias, he initially objects and says, you know, Lord, I'm done this before and eaten unclean but then there's quite the pivotal moment when he invites them into his house and then uh, they go to Cornelius's house together and the spirit comes and, and certifies it so I think those two stories are, are coupled together which is significant that they should be because Saul is called out to be this um, apostle to the Gentiles but then Peter's vision I, I guess make the Gentiles kosher, as it were. Um, it shows that that's a valid uh, vision for, for Paul to later enact. Yeah, I would say, I think another parallel between the two, uh, those two stories is the, the conversion that has to take place in the believer. Uh, yeah. Ananias, we, we talked about this in the last episode when we talked about the conversion of Saul. Ananias is going through a kind of conversion too. 
he has to be, uh, he, he's learning something about the Lord's power to, and mercy that extends even to the enemies of Jesus. And Peter is going, is going through a change. Cornelius is going to receive the spirit, but really Peter's change of mind that's the key. As you said, he initially objects to killing and eating from the great sheet. And then he, uh, but then he learns a lesson from it, as he himself says. So th- there's that that parallel too between Ananias and Peter, both of them having to go through a, a change of a change of mind and heart. Hmm. And in both cases, there's a concern for mutual recognition. Um, Christ is forming a church, not just saving individuals. Here, I yeah. wonder, should we see some sort of um, background in um, the identity of humanity formed from the sons of Noah in the fact that we have Ham, Shem, and Japheth descendants in successive chapters as key converts. Mm. So you're talking about the Ethiopian? Yep. Is that, is that the Hamite that you have? Yeah, very interesting. That would be definitely worth exploring exploring further. Mm. Yeah, I think the other, uh, we talked about uh, Elijah and Elisha, and that would... Uh, uh, we'd have some kind of correlation here too, because we have uh, a, a kind of Naaman figure, Naaman who is a Syrian Aramean uh, commander. At that time, Aram and Israel were at odds with each other, and yet Elisha is uh, showing mercy and healing the Aramean commander. Um, Peter's going to visit a Gentile, not just a Gentile, but a Roman, not just a Roman, but a centurion. <laughs> Uh, and uh, they're going to lodge together, and uh, they're going to receive the same spirit. So th- I think you have a similar kind of political setup, but also the it seems like you can have a continuation of that Elijah Elisha typology going on here. Hmm. We've already encountered a faithful centurion in the Gospels, um, which perhaps anticipates the fact that there will be faithful um, God fearers in the places where you'd least expect. And that the gospel is not just going to Gentiles, but going to Gentiles that perhaps would be more rejected by um, Israel than others. I'm struck by the fact that this is, as you pointed out, Peter, an enacted um, an enacted in- incident in many senses. So in verse 13, there is this command to Peter, you know, rise, Peter, kill and eat this sort of threefold uh, imperative. And then in verse 20, when the men come, rise and go down and accompany them. So again, these, these three um, imperatives. And then Peter goes with the, or invites at that point, invites the three men in. And so uh, that is then becomes Jew and Gentile fellowship. And then he accompanies uh, them to the house of Cornelius and, they eat, um, and, and the idea of, sort of eating together is, is sort of significant, perhaps, um, and or at least sort of having fellowship in a, in a house. And so this, you know, it, it's not just some uh, uh, abstract thing. That, that there is an, an actual coming together of, of Jew and Gentile in, mm-hmm. in this whole incident. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's a coming together that, that climaxes uh, with, well, it seems to climax with table fellowship and hospitality, right? Mm. Uh, that's the, that's the target. I think that when thinking about uh, typological background, I think the part of the typology too is uh, an association with uh, with the story of Jonah, and this is uh, 
this is not an original idea with me, but a number of a number of uh, essays have pointed out the the various correlations. Uh, Robert Wall, uh, in an essay that uh, on um, Peter and Jonah, points out that Peter is uh, Simon Bar Jonah, according to uh, Matthew's Gospel, uh, and he points out that there's a sequence of words in the book of Jonah that uh, occur within the story of Peter and Cornelius in the same order. So there's a reference to Joppa, the place name. There's a commission to go to a Gentile and hesitation in the case of both Peter and Jonah. Uh, there's a, the number three appears in sequence. It's not, the, it's not naming the same thing. It's in the case of Jonah, of course, it's the three days in the uh, belly of the fish. In Peter's case, it's the three uh, repetitions of the vision, but you still have the number three in the same place. And then Peter does go and he brings the gospel to Cornelius and Cornelius hears and believes, which is uh, correlating to Jonah going to Nineveh and uh, Nineveh converting when they hear this message. And then of course there's opposition. And in Jonah's case, it's Jonah himself is unhappy with the outcome. He doesn't like all these Gentiles getting uh, saved from a judgment. And in chapter 11, as we'll see in the next episode, there's an there's opposition to Peter's actions from some of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So there's a, a pretty extended uh, Jonah connection that's running through the whole story. Yeah, there are a few other links as well, I think. I mean, geographically, we've got Tarsus or Tarshish in the background because Saul has just gone there. We've got the fact Peter is said explicitly to be beside the sea on a couple of locations. This sheet, which I'm not quite sure what to make of, but can refer to it as a sail, actually, or, or frequently mm. does in, in various um, dictionaries. There, there's a four-day Jonah, uh, four-day journey in some senses in Jonah, uh, three in the fish, and then it's quite explicit. He, he goes a day's journey into mm. Nineveh, which can resonates with the four days here in Peter's story. But then I'm I'm struck by the fact that there is this. Um, as the trigger point in both stories, there is something that rises up to heaven. So Nineveh gets God's attention in the wrong way. It, it's evil ways are said to rise up before God in heaven. But here it's the the prayers and the almsgiving of Cornelius that, that rise up before God and, and get God's attention. And so it, it does seem to have all that um, Jonah backdrop, but in a more positive way. And this, I guess, is going to be a permanent conversion of some gentiles rather than what seems to be just a short-lived um conversion in the case of jonah and nineveh and i think that jonah that jonah connection highlights an aspect of um, jonah's story that uh, we sometimes gloss over and when we think about the sign of jonah jesus talks about the sign of jonah of course as a sign of his resurrection but it's it's not just that that's the sign of jonah it's the sign of the, the sign of jonah is the resurrection of Jesus and then the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, which is in part a matter of judgment against the Jews. So it's that whole that whole sequence of events that's the sign of Jonah. Uh, Jesus rising from the dead is initiates it in a sense, but then what Peter's doing here is bringing that the rest of that Jonah typology to fulfillment. The description of the prayers of a Gentile God fearer as ascending to the Lord as a memorial and the way that he's described as praying at the um, ninth hour of the day, which is in chapter three described as the hour of prayer when Peter and John go up to pray. It presents this Gentile 
almost as a, a pious Jew and performing the things that are at the heart of Jewish worship by his faithful God-fearing. Um, he's not someone who's um, going up to the temple, but he's maybe like Daniel who prays at the hour of um, the evening sacrifice and is heard at that time. Um, and the angel coming to him might um, recall that story in chapter 9 of Daniel, where there is a sort of performance of the logic of the sacrificial system, even without it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the terminology uh, lends itself to that. You have the prayers go up continually in verse 2. That's a repeated phrase that's used in the Pentateuch to describe the fire on the altar, the burning of the lamps on the lampstand. The showbread has to be continually present on the table. And then uh, his uh, alms and prayers ascend as a memorial, which is, again, a sacrificial term, uh, something that brings him to mind before God. It's important, as Alistair said, to remember that Cornelius is not a pagan. He's a Roman, and he's going to be, there are going to be some Jews who are suspicious of him just because he's a Roman and a centurion, but he's a Roman who fears God, supports uh, uh, the Jewish people who's well-regarded, at least by some Jews, so again, uh, as I said earlier about the two, the two healings at the end of chapter nine, we seem to be still in the zone of Judaism, but now we're going to those within the zone of Judaism who are kind of on the margins of that zone before we go completely out of the Jewish world into the actual Gentile mission, which Saul is going to be involved in. Uh, we're moving out from the center uh, in Jerusalem out to the margins where you have God-fearing Gentiles in places like Caesarea. Uh, and those are going to be incorporated into the kingdom, and then Gentiles later are going to be incorporated into the kingdom. It seems significant that in verse 1, um, it points out that this guy Cornelius is part of what's known as the Italian cohort or, or the Italian band or, or something. It feels like it's highlighting the fact that there is, there is not a mixed or integrated community, that there is still this kind of Roman um, section of the community living quite independently from the Jews. And mm. if that's right, then it just seems significant as the gospel goes out and starts unbabelizing the world, it is able to achieve what Rome hasn't achieved, I guess, which is the, the, the proper integration of Jew and Gentile in, into a body. Mm. It's worth remembering at this point that what's happening at um, during the mission of the early church is not necessarily conversion, as we'd often think about it, people moving from unbelief to belief but rather it's the dawning of a new age and people who have been believing um, but waiting for something are now brought into the new world of the kingdom of God where there is no longer Jew and, and Greek, slave and free, etc. But the transition that's taking place here is not necessarily the transition that we tend to think of, the transition from um, paganism and unbelief to faith in the living God, but it's a transition from the position of a God-fearer who's outside, like um, the Ethiopian eunuch as well, into participation in the covenant people, membership of the household of God, and mm -hmm. unity of the new body that is being formed in Christ, and entrance into the new age of the new covenant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's crucial, really, for understanding uh, the way that the gospel in the first century is forming a united uh, Jew-Gentile body. 
Christians sometimes think this is uh, what the new the new thing is that Gentiles are being saved, and in the Old Testament only Jews were saved. But Cornelius is an obvious example that of a Gentile who is pleasing to God even before he encounters Peter. And there are other examples of that uh, uh, elsewhere in Acts and, and the New Testament. So that's not what's happening. What's happening is you have Jews and Gentiles who at this point are both worshiping the, the true God, who are being brought together into one body uh, on on equal terms where there's no priority given to uh, the, the Jews. Their calling as a separate people is being fulfilled in this new body. It's not, again, it's not a matter of salvation for Gentiles. It's a matter of a new, it's a matter of the, the form of the church where Jews and Gentiles have equal standing before God and equal standing within the body of Christ. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, here are Gentile people who are doing what the law requires in some senses. They have been regenerated by the Spirit of God and their, their works show who, who they are. And it strikes me as um, strikes me as significant that when Paul talks about this in uh, Romans 2, for instance, and how... Um, uh, God will do good to the Jew first and, and also the Greek for God shows no partiality as he goes on to, to, to talk about Gentiles who do what the law requires. That Peter uses the same phrase here. So in verse 34, he opens his mouth and says, um, God shows no partiality. And so um, I, I don't want to portray this as some works salvation. You know, God has provoked good works in, in uh, these Gentiles. And I guess Peter is is showing that God is is not partial um, in in that sense. He's revealing himself to um, whoever is is living in that right way. We could maybe compare this account to the account at the beginning of Luke's gospel, where we're introduced to the character of Zechariah, who is righteous and blameless, and goes up to the hour of prayer at the hour of incense. He is told that an angel appears. He's told that his prayers have been um, remembered. And here we have another character who's described like the initial righteous character expecting the um, deliverance of Israel. Now this is a Gentile with the same sort of expectation, but from the other side. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.